Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. You know, before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore and the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the Birth of Outlaw Country Music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the rise of outlaw country music and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision in her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. Hey, it's Bobby Bones. Hey, I just want to say thanks to everybody who has stepped up for the St. Jude kids. St. Jude's doing incredible work fighting childhood cancer. And because of donations, like the ones that you get, families never receive a bill ever from St. Jude for treatment, travel, housing, food, none of that. Help St. Jude stop childhood cancer. Become a partner in hope. Get this awesome new This Shirt Saves Lives shirt. It's going to look great on you. So join all the doctors, researchers, and me in this fight. All right, text the word Bobby. It's only six numbers to 785-833. Again, text the word Bobby to just these six numbers, 785-833. This is the year to stop overpaying for your family plan. So choose a straight talk wireless family plan. Unlimited data, talk, and text on a reliable 5G network. And you can get a new line starting at $25 per line per month for four lines, plus taxes and fees and no contracts. That's good decision making. Available at Walmart and on straighttalk.com. Family plan discount with four lines, all on the silver unlimited plan. Not combinable with auto pay discount. In times of traffic, your data may be temporarily slower than other traffic. Video streams at up to 480p. Welcome to episode 268. We'll do CMA Award Facts You Didn't Know. Remembering Jerry Jeff Walker. Tom Lord on what goes into artist management. Maybe something you heard about but you didn't know much about. Jamie Lynn Spears is on this, but it's all about music. Let's start with new music this week. Here are the five that I'm like, oh, this is pretty cool. First up, Bush released a new album. You would know them from their old song. Here's one of them, Glycerine. And if you're new at the guitar, you probably learned this because it's the four chords over and over and over that are very easy to do. But they put out the Kingdom Deluxe Edition with this song, Heroes, which is a tribute to David Bowie. It's a David Bowie song. Here you go. We can be heroes Just for one day And number four, I'm putting a little Christmas music here. Brett Eldridge and Kelly Clarkson released a new Christmas duet called Under the Mistletoe. Speaking of Christmas, Hootie and the Blowfish and special guests Abigail Hodges have released a new holiday theme track called Won't Be Home for Christmas. At number three. We will talk on the phone, but it won't be home for Christmas. That's cool. We have God on our side, but we won't be home for Christmas. Man, maybe I should have made that number one. <laughs> that was good. Cam has a new album called Other Side. Here's a song you may have heard that's already from it called Classic. I wanna hear you. And here's a brand new song called Like a Movie from Cam's new album that's out today. And at number one, I got to put our guest today, Jamie Lynn Spears. She released Follow Me. It's a reimagined version of the Zoe 101 theme song. And we'll talk to her coming up. Here's a clip of that. Tell the DJ, Jamie, can 
Now, I'm not going to listen to this myself, but I love Jamie Lynn Spears. Her and I have been friends for a long time. She's back with Zoe 101, and uh, she's on the podcast. So I don't want her to hear this back and not have her at number one. <laughs> you know? Uh, Kip Moore also, as an honorable mention, released announced he's releasing Wild World Deluxe in February, which featured his song, She's Mine. It's got four new songs, including one that's out now. It's called Don't Go Changing. As far as albums go, Winona Judd put out her Recollections EP, five new songs. Ariana Grande has a new album called Positions. Elvis Costello has a new album. Goo Goo Dolls, It's Christmas All Over. The Goo Goo Dolls are back. A <laughs> 90s Christmas. I thought it would be like early 2000s Christmas, I guess. Yeah. Like, it's a 2001 Christmas <laughs> with the Goo Goo Dolls. Tori Kelly has a Christmas album. Joni Mitchell has Archives Volume 1, 1963 to 1967. There's a Stevie Nicks Live in Concert out today. Sam Smith, Megan Trainer has a very Megan Trainer Christmas, a very Trainer Christmas. So a lot of Christmas stuff coming out now. As far as news goes, Billy Joe Shaver, pioneer of Outlaw Country, dead at 81. I was a big Billy Joe Shaver fan. Uh... My, I love Live Forever as one of my top... Just like the songs I, Hold on. I love Live Forever as like a top 25 song for me. Billy Joe Shaver died of a stroke at Waco, Texas Ascension Providence Hospital. If you loved Texas country, you love Billy Joe Shaver. He rose to further prominence after Chris Christopherson recorded this song, Good Christian Soldier. He wrote stuff, you know, Live Forever, Highwayman, 1995, other numbers, Elvis, David Allen Coe, Patty Loveless, Doug Kershaw, Johnny Paycheck, just so many people he wrote for, but yeah, that's sad. Jerry Jeff Walker and Billy Joe Shaver. We'll talk about Jerry Jeff Walker later on, huh? Yep. Whitney Houston's I Will Always Love You hit 1 billion views on YouTube. With a B, a billion. There will be an Eddie Van Halen tribute during the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction special. The number one song in the country this week is Mood by 24K Golden. I just know it from TikTok. I was uh, listening to the pop station of the day and I knew like four songs in a row. Caitlin was with me. She was like, I can tell when you've been on TikTok because you know all the songs. <laughs> Otherwise, I wouldn't know any of them. And then ACDC used fireworks to find the Loch Ness Monster. Do you know about this, Mike? I do. Tell me about it. I think they were all drunk on tour and they were like, hey, let's try to get the Loch Ness Monster out. So they fired out a bunch of fireworks. Uh, I would expect nothing less. <laughs> all right, there you go. I hope you enjoy this one. That's your new music. Thank you, guys. Bobby and Eddie's music school is now in session. Open the morning and out to school. Eddie, how are you? I'm great, Bones. How are you? Pretty good. We're going to talk about, with me, my first one is the CMA Award Fact You May Not Know. Because here we go. It's coming up. Mm-hmm. So let's see here. It's uh, what from the recording of what we're doing, we're two weeks out. By the time people will hear this, it'll be about a week and a half out. Right, Mike? From the CMA Awards. Um, Entertainer of the Year. That's the big one. The history of the first CMA Entertainer of the Year, since we'll talk about it with Tom Lord coming up in a second. The very first CMA Awards took place in 1967, which means this year the Country Music Association will crown its 54th Entertainer of the Year, 
But which artist do you think was first to take home this prestigious award? 54th. Hank Williams. It's a good guess. The honor belongs to Eddie Arnold. Oh, okay. A pioneer of the Nashville sound. Nicknamed the Tennessee Plowboy, Arnold had 145 songs make the country charts during his 60-year career. 28 went number one. That feat puts him second to only who, do you think, for most songs on the chart? Country. Country. Johnny Cash. Again, solid guess. (laughs) But no, you're wrong. George Jones. (laughs) He was inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame in 1966 and died in 2008. Some of his number ones include, from Eddie Arnold, this is It's a Sin. It's a sin, my darling, how I love you. Because I know our love can never be. Here's another one called Cattle Call. Whispers are a jingling, a cowboy is singing this lonesome cattle call. And one final one, Make the World Go Away. Make the world go away. Oh, that's a good one, That's man. the only one I know of those three, yeah, though. Yeah, me too. And I like to think I'm pretty smart when it comes to history, but... If I'm just being honest, I didn't know the first two. But I remember Eddie Arnold with the first kind of sound that you played. The first song with more, a little more country swing. That's yeah. how I remember Eddie Arnold, but I do remember this song. Do you? Can you picture Eddie Arnold in your head? Yes, gl- a lot of glitter. What he looks like? <laughs> yeah, but big, big, tall uh, gallon, what do they call it, a 10-gallon cowboy hat and uh, a lot of glitter or rhinestones on his suit. Is that accurate? The Eddie Arnold I see, yeah, old Eddie Arnold, yes. I think, had a big hat, yes. Let's talk about the origin of the trophy. The current CMA Awards trophy is oh, supposed yeah. to be designed like the, uh, like a chart bullet and is made from a crystal imported from Florence, Italy. Because it's kind of like this. Yes, ovally sharp. And it's glass. Mm-hmm. Originally made from walnut, a shortage of the wood supply in 1983 led to the crystal design. They didn't have any wood, so they just made it nicer. Crazy. Yep, didn't crazy. know that. It's been in Nashville every year since 2005. It was only at Madison Square Garden in New York City one time. The 2020 CMA Awards are November 11th. will air live from Nashville on ABC due to the coronavirus. The show will be hosted at Nashville's Music City Center, not Bridgestone Arena, which is customary. Mm-hmm. There will be no live audience. There will be some people there, though. I'm a part of the show. I can't announce it yet. Heck, I'd hope to host it. Didn't get that job this year. Dang it. Felt like I was in the running there. Dang it. Till the so last close. second. I know. Uh, but... There'll be people in the audience, but it won't be a normal crowd. I think it's just going to be people that may be up for awards and Mm. people that are a part of the show. I chose not to. I'm not going to sit in the crowd. Yeah. I'm going to go and walk through a back door, not be around anyone, just get out. Like the ACMs. Stay safe. Mm -hmm. Uh, The first female CMA Entertainer of the Year. Who do you think that was? It's tough. I'm asking you crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 1972. I'll, I'll guess the Loretta Lynn. Correct. Yes! Got one. You got it, yeah. Here's a hook of Coal Miner's Daughter from Loretta Lynn. Here you go. Well, I was born to Coal Miner's Daughter. Only six other female performers have won the award. Can you name any of them? Mm, Dolly? We'll only have Dixie Chicks and Taylor Swift. <laughs> I thought they would all be listed here. I mean, I'm, maybe Dolly's in there. I don't know. Garth Brooks and Kenny Chesney have the most Entertainer of the Year awards. Yeah, of course. All right. Uh, finally, Eric Church, Luke Combs, Miranda Lambert, Carrie Underwood, and Keith Urban are up this year. Now, I remember reading a while back that, you know, because some article that was differentiating the ACMs and the CMAs. Is it accurate to say that CMAs were was the Nashville award show? Completely accurate because okay. the ACMs were California, West Coast country. Right. Yeah, and that's why the show is always in Los Angeles. It was in Nashville this year because of coronavirus and all the artists weren't going to travel. 
But yes, that was California, West Coast country. And now Vegas is where they have it. Yeah, now. yeah, West yeah. Coast, yes. Yeah, crazy. I didn't, I didn't realize They've that done until it in, this year. in Los Angeles a few times, mm-hmm. too. I think it started in Los yeah. Angeles. Um, Pretty cool. That is my version of music school. Eddie, over to you. All right, so we're remembering Jerry Jeff Walker. At age 78, he lost his battle to throat cancer. And, um, man, he, he just really was uh, the soundtrack of my high school years, my college years. And I love Jerry Jeff. And one of the cool things is just kind of going through Instagram and seeing the artists that posted, you know, about his death. And uh, Jimmy Buffett was one of the ones that kind of stuck out to me because if it wasn't for Jerry Jeff, cool little factoid, uh, Jerry Jeff, if it wasn't for Jerry Jeff taking him to Key West, Jimmy would have never really found that beach sound he was looking for. Wow. It was Jerry Jeff that drove him to Key West for the first time. And, uh, and he, Jimmy ended up loving it and staying there and writing songs there, which became kind of the, the background of his beach sound, if, if you want to call it that. But, but that's pretty cool. And also too, just kind of, uh, growing up in, in Texas, my whole life, Jerry Jeff was the godfather of Texas country, you know, and it's cool to kind of know where he came from because these artists, you, you know, them as the sound, like I just said, Jimmy Buffett, right. But, but Jerry Jeff started in New York. He's, he's a New Yorker and he started there in the 1960s in the Greenwich village sound. So with Dylan, Dave Van Ronk, you know, those folk singers, that's what Jerry wanted to be. Change his name, change his name completely. Mm -hmm. That's where he changed his name. So Coming to Texas, he's like, no, 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 this is who I am. This is how I, this is where I feel very comfortable and started that Texas country sound, which is pretty cool, man. And I think we all know him from Mr. Bojangles. 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 I think a lot of people, though, don't know that he wrote that because the Bob Dylan version to me was the one that most people know. Do you remember the nitty gritty version? Nitty gritty dirt man. I don't. I feel like I I was again. I, I was, know it, but I don't remember it. Like I know it now, but I didn't know it from back in the day. Yeah, that, that, that's kind of where I come from too. Is like I, I do remember hearing that. I don't remember who I knew it from, but Bojangles to me was a very famous song, but I never knew who did it. It always sounded like it was something that Bob Dylan did. So I do remember him singing that. But once again, high school when I got the the CD of Jerry Jeff to singing Mr. Bojangles and researching where did this come from. Uh, yeah, it's Jerry Jeff's song. This is his song. Wrote it back in New Orleans from, you know, being, I guess he got arrested for public intoxication, got thrown in jail in New Orleans, ended up meeting this guy who was a homeless dude and his dog. And uh, he was telling stories of his dog and how he died and all this stuff, but he would dance in the jail cell. So he wrote Mr. Bojangles because of that. Pretty cool. Other clips we have, uh, Sangria Wine. These are kind of my, my top three Jerry Jeff songs. Sangria Wine to me. Love sangria wine. Oh, I love sangria wine. What else you got? And I got get, getting by also, and I picked these songs because these are written by Jerry Jeff. I didn't know him personally, but I felt by listening to Getting By that this is kind of how he lived his life, just one day at a time, getting by, living my life, easy come, easy go. And, and that, to me, really hit me, you know, when I was listening to it the weekend that he died. But um, Getting By, man, this is this takes me back. To when? Wasn't this before you were High born? High school. No, just listening to this. Oh, okay. 
hanging out with my buddies. We would just have parties and just blare Jerry Jeff Walker. I don't even know when this was recorded. Is this an older song? Yeah, this is, this is 70s. Okay. That's what I thought. When I said that, I was like, you know what? I could be wrong. And Luke and Bach, too, is, you know, that was, this is where he recorded a lot of these songs. Um, not really with a crowd, but just to go to Lukenbach, take the tour bus, and just go record an album there. Pretty cool. There you go. Jerry Jeff, man, rest in peace. But like you always say, it's so cool that we're going to have his music for the rest of our lives and then lives to come, for sure. And that is Bobby and Eddie's Music School. Class dismissed. That was Bobby and Eddie's Music School. In every pair of Tacova's boots, you can expect handmade quality, first wear comfort, and timeless Western style. A great pair of Western boots will elevate a casual look or add a refined flair that'll draw both eyes and compliments. Tacova's boots are always made from premium bovine and exotic leathers, and with occasional resoling, they'll last a lifetime. The best way to shop for boots is at your local Tacova store, where you'll be greeted by the smell of fresh leather and a friendly smile. Come on in, grab a cold one, get fitted by a pro, and shop the latest styles. They offer custom branding and leather stamping if you want to personalize your boots or fine leather goods. And stay cool in short-sleeve moisture-wicking pearl snap or make your own shade with one of their classic straw hats, new in both men's and women's styles. And if you're planning to hit the road, Tacova's ever-growing lineup of rugged and full-grain leather bags will get you where you're headed in style and are built to last decades. Visit Tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. Tacovas.com. And don't go gently, y'all. This is the year to stop overpaying for your family plan. So choose a straight talk wireless family plan. Unlimited data, talk, and text on a reliable 5G network. And you can get a new line starting at $25 per line per month for four lines, plus taxes and fees and no contracts. That's good decision making. Available at Walmart and on straighttalk.com. Family plan discount with four lines, all on the silver unlimited plan. Not combinable with auto pay discount. In times of traffic, your data may be temporarily slower than other traffic. Video streams at up to 480p. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson, how did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the Birth of Outlaw Country Music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer shaped the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed as the Boar's Nest, Sue's place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, that's where they would spur each other and tap into something bigger and something realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Backrack as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash alongside a full ensemble cast. Audible invites you to enter the Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Listen now at audible.com slash the boar's nest. Hey, I wanted to bring someone in and talk about management because it's not really something we've talked about a lot on the show other than me going, I got to pay him 15%. I mean, that's mostly, <laughs> it's mostly me griping about, but in, in a loving way, because I know I make more than 15% off the 15% I pay. So I wanted to bring in Tom Lord of Red Light Management. What is your overarching title there? Well, we don't have official titles, but I'll tell you my role, which is basically describing a title. Um, I was brought in from Universal Music Group. I was a record label guy. Came into management about seven years ago to help build the marketing department. So I was head of marketing 
for our Nashville office, and then that sort of has evolved. And there are a handful of us that run the office and help Corin, who that's a name I'll probably say in this podcast a couple of times, um, help Corin, who is the head of the company, run the Nashville office. And that's some of the basic logistical things of um, the office, office maintenance, it's hirings and firings if necessary, and just kind of general maintenance of the, the management team in Nashville. And then um, management roles as well. So I have a couple artists that I sort of have under my supervision from a manager role. And full transparency, I am one of them. So is the Raging Idiots, which is one and the same, except not. Uh, Gabby Barrett, mm-hmm. you work with Gabby. Mm-hmm. I mean, I worked with Gabby four years ago on Idol. Yep. I remember those conversations like, okay, Gabby's coming. Let's get her. And the early, early ones. And then watch. Yep. And you were so instrumental in her even landing a record deal. Yeah. Yeah. So before we get to that specifically, like why in the world would someone need a manager? Because most folks don't even know. When someone gets up and gives a speech and they're like, oh, I think our manager, we all just roll our eyes because we don't know what that means. Well, that's what I was going to say. This, this podcast may be your least consumed podcast because I'm not sure people really know what management is or have any interest, but I do think it's important. It's definitely a big part of this industry. The biggest. For me, it's massive for what I do, and it's not something I talk about because I'm not embarrassed of it or I don't think it, people aren't interested, but it's just so in the weeds. Yes. But that's what this podcast is. Yes. So why in the world would someone need a manager? Uh, for The best way to describe it is, is to put it as an analogy for running a business. You know, the artist is the chairman of a business. That's your business. You know, in your case, you have a business that you need to run. And that includes for you specifically, it's touring, it's merchandise, it's philanthropic efforts, it's uh, personal appearances, it's uh, publishing book deals, it's, um, you know, TV, what, radio, TV, radio, everything, everything yeah. you know. And so, you know, with your need to be creatively involved on all those in, in all of those facets of your business, um, you need somebody to help run your business. So you're the chairman and we're your president of the company. So we help run the PR department and finance department and merchandise department, the philanthropic department, um, merchandise, the, the whole ball of wax. So we just, our job is to make sure all of the pieces of the business are connected and that are working and help execute your goals. That's what a manager does. Um, and, you know, we're in the weeds with everything, you know, when we try to keep the artist out of the weeds, but all of it is with their direction. And we come as, you know, in the case with you, if there's anything that comes up, we don't sign off on it unless we know that's something that you would sign off on, or we, we, we come to you and ask specifically for your yes or no on certain things. So that, that's really the role of the manager. If that answers that right. With Gabby, like, what do you deal with day to day with, uh, a, she's got a number one song, but a pretty new artist in country music, because I would imagine that's a lot different than someone who has been around for a bit. So what is it with in, in the Gabby process that you're dealing with right now? Um, I'll, I'll start with when, when I first started working with Gabby, what that role was, and then kind of where it is today. When I first started working with Gabby, you know, some of it was just even pretty basic education about Nashville in the in the music business because I, that's the other thing I think a manager is important for for an artist is an artist generally walks into becoming an artist or you know sort of declares that they're going to become an artist but they don't know the facets of business they don't know the avenue they don't have the roadmap to be able to navigate a label conversation and a publisher conversation and who's the right merchandise person or the booking agency who are the right people that I need to talk to so that is what the experience of a manager has and helps bring to the table for an artist and and that was for the case with Gabby or in the case with Gabby early on, she came out of American Idol and that, 
is an amazing platform, as you know, and, and are deeply involved with. It's an amazing platform to build an audience, but it doesn't necessarily guarantee you the record deal and the publishing deal or merchandise deal or the, get on a tour, et cetera, et cetera. And so when Gabby first came off of Idol, as mature as she was for her age, and she came off of, of Idol and she was 19 years old, um, you know, she needed some education on how Nashville works. And so I, I felt like the first part of my job with her was um, sort of setting the tone for, hey, here's the reality of the situation. You came off an amazing TV show, gave you a great platform, but no labels are jumping, you know, to, to sign you. And so now what we have to do is prove it to them. And so it was helping set the, I think, the roadmap for building a reputation outside of Idol, building a reputation as an artist in the town and starting to be part of the community. So that was a big part of it then. And then it was with her and navigating with 19 Entertainment, who is also part of the American Idol family, who was a part of the mix, but they're not necessarily part of the Nashville community, um, that we navigated releasing her song, I Hope, without a major label deal. And that was where you know I, my role as a marketer and also manager came into strong play with her to help, you know, kind of work with the DSPs, which are the digital partners. It's the Spotify's, the Apple's, the Pandora's and um, Amazon's to make sure that they knew this artist was coming, that they knew who she was and what she was about. Finding a PR person, you know, was sort of building the team. I think that was a big part of it. Building the team was a, another part of the early roles. And then we get the major label deal. And then it's, you know, then we released the single out to terrestrial radio and it, it has done tremendously well. Um, so my role, I would say, has evolved from when we first started working together to today. And I think today, um, the role of my job with Gabby, and we have a lot of conversations about it, is you know she understands that we've had a, a, an amazing first step, um, and we're having a moment. Is is sort of this is my cliche thing that I say, and I, I, I say it in almost every meeting we're in, is that you know we're having a moment, but we need to make a movement. And so that is now, how do we navigate from the I hope artist? into an artist that has, you know, repeated success. And, um, and so we're trying to, as you know, as listen, as we never want to, you know, sort of look a gift horse in the mouth here, but, you know, with the success that we're having with, I hope and continue to have, I'm trying to move past it in, in a lot of ways to say, Hey, look at this song. And it's the good ones. That's our next single. And so my, my job now is trying to change the spotlight a bit, you know, let's enjoy the spotlight that we've got with the, with, with, I hope, but let's, try to shift the spotlight to show the success that we're having with the good ones because we know we need to move from this moment. There has to be imagination. To a That's exactly right. Uh, with an artist like Chris Jansen, who I know you're involved with, Chris and yep. Kelly. Kelly's his manager, his wife, and you're also involved in, in Chris because he's at Red Light as well. Obviously, he's a lot older, had been around a lot longer, um, had been in Nashville way before you got involved with Chris. So how is that different situationally with Chris than with Gabby? Uh, The approach is very different. You know, with Gabby, it is you're building a introduction. It's a first impression that you're trying to build. And that has a a strategy to it. You know, you only have the one time to make a first impression, as as they say. And, you know, and so for her, it's building the right first impressions. For Chris, there's at least some history there that you're able to jump into that as because Chris had previous management and, as you said, had different record deals. And when he came over to Red Light and so... Um, what we're able to do in that case is sort of look at the history and go, okay, let's look at what you have done. And now you've already made an impression in the marketplace. And is there anything with that impression that we need to change? Do we need to evolve that? Do we need to grow that? And I think 
Um, and, and I think it's okay to say this because it was de- it was definitely my strategy with first working with Chris, and that was um, kind of building again sort of repeatable success because I think there was a impression with Chris that he was the surprise hit maker with Buy Me a Boat. And the reason I say surprise hit maker with Buy Me a Boat because he had had a couple of record deals. And at some point in this industry, love it or hate it, sometimes the industry churns you out. After you've had a couple of record deals, you've sort of lost your opportunity. And Chris um, released Buy Me a Boat independently. This is even before signing with Warner, released Buy Me a Boat. And it just, with the help of Bobby Bone Show, plug, did you get that plug? Uh, with the help of Bobby Bones and the Bobby Bone Show, put him back on the map. And so that became a surprise hit. And then all of a sudden the record labels are calling again. And so, and, and he was having success, but it wasn't, he wasn't able to replicate necessarily the success of Buy Me a Boat after that song had come out. And so, as I talked about with Gabby, sort of trying to find that repeatability. I think with Chris, that was the strategy when we first started working together. It's like, hey, we need to prove it. Chris, we know you've got the talent. We can hear it in the songs. We, we hear it in the record. We know your talent. We know what you can do on stage. But now we need the town to see you as more than Buy Me a Boat. And I think there, I, I would put... Um, Chris and, and Gabby almost in the same category is that they're, that first major hit that they both had in Chris's case, Buy Me a Boat, and in Gabby's case, I hope, they, those songs will always follow them around. Um, it is hard when you have a song that is so big that is really the first big hit for an artist. Um, you know, that will follow you around for your whole career. And you just you, the job is never to try to re, um, repeat that exact song success, but you've got to then evolve from it. And I think from Chris, that was the case. It's like, we got to show people that you're more than that. And since then he's, and this is all on him because he's the songwriter on all these songs, but it's fix a drink and it's good vibes and it's drunk girl. Um, and it's done. And now waiting on five is the current single. He has now repeated success. So I think the strategy changed with, you know, and it, and it was different when I started working with Chris versus working with Gabby. And so I think that's how it was different for Chris. If, and there are a lot of artists that listen to this podcast because we do go on the weeds at times with publishing, now with management, obviously. Sometimes they're like, how the heck do I get a manager? And, I, and I, my answer is always the same when anyone's asking, how do I do anything? It's play as many places as you can be and hopefully you catch someone's eye. That's just my general answer because I know that's not wrong. It may not be right, but it's not wrong. So as someone who is pretty high up at the biggest management company in town, I'm assuming Red Light's the biggest in town. It is, right? It's the biggest independent management company, I think, in the world, the way that's in its setup. And I think from a, from a number of staff and artists, probably the biggest. So how does one that's unmanaged get a manager? Man, so many avenues for that. And, you know, if you're an aspiring artist and, and you're listening to this and you want to say, man, how do I find a manager? Um, you know, managers come in different shapes and sizes. I, I tell you... The, the role of the manager is somebody that you can really trust. And, and, and I hate to say that anybody can be a manager, but to a certain extent, you know, there are a lot of people, and I listened to the podcast, actually my prep work coming into today was listening to the podcast with Carrie Edwards. She wasn't a manager when she first started working with Luke, but she was somebody that believed in Luke and Luke trusted, and they had built a rapport together and, you know, just found that sort of synergy to lean on each other. And, you know, look at the success that they've had. And she is his manager still today from the day one. Um, but she didn't start that way. She was a publisher. And prior to that, she was at a record company. And um, so I think you can find a manager in anybody, but um, it, that you trust and that you've built a relationship with. But, you know, I think from my perspective, we get 
sort of recommendations from artists, from attorneys, from publishers, from record companies. Um, you know, it, it, we get recommendations a lot. That's how we find artists mostly um, is from the publishing community or from the booking agents that have seen an artist out on the road. Um, if you're an artist and you haven't necessarily built those relationships, um, I, to be honest with you, I don't know that you need managers, probably not the first move that you need to make. You don't need to go, Hey, I need to go get a manager and then I can build everybody. Um, I think probably you start with, if you're a songwriter, you start in the songwriting community and you build your relationships with the PROs and that's a BMI or ASCAP or CSAC. And then they help develop and build relationships into the publishing community and then once you build into the publishing community, that starts to build out your team. And that's where a manager really is a valuable part of the team. It's probably not the first team member you have in most cases. Um, it's when you're at a level where you're ready to go in the marketplace and you've got, got to make some of those decisions and pitch to the labels and, and you know, kind of make the touring moves that I think the manager is probably the most important component of your team at that point. But to shift the question just a bit, how in the world do you get to be a manager? Because, again, we have those people, too, who are working entry-level jobs or they're they're artists who don't want to do it anymore and who maybe had it busted through. And they're like, hey, I think I just want to manage. And people may come to you like, how do people become a manager? Well, I I think what makes you a good manager is experience. Um, In something? Well, that's where I was going to go with it. I think in something. I mean, I think this is such a small town in some ways. I'm going to say it in town is I'm referring to Nashville mostly is that it's just a, such a small community of people and we all learn from each other. We all work really well together and we all get along for the most part. I think it's fair to say, um, you know, it's finding the Avenue that, um, you know, where you're passionate about in some cases it's in the songwriting community and, and you're working in the publishing world and you decide you want to make a move into management then you find that artist that you really want to work with. Like you find, you know, and I encourage people if they're in high school or college, um, you know, find that local talent and, and, and work with them and, and try to help them and learn as you go. It's experience for the most part that really gives you the credentials to become a manager. I'll tell you for me what I think makes me um, good at my job and management is that I, I have been in this industry a long time and the gray hairs are showing it. Um, but for me, I was in the marketing department at, at a, in a record company and that's where I learned about radio. And that's when I learned about sort of branding and, um, working with artists and knowing the sort of the nuances of the artist. And, um, and I think for me, that's given me a broad scope of the industry as a whole that makes me, I think a valuable part of the management team is knowing already the nuances of, of the, the labels and the decisions that need to be made there. So I think um, it's, it's really grinding it out in the industry for the most part. I, I do think there are a lot of people that wave their hands when they come out of college. They say, I want to be a manager, and they just they start working with artists. But they just don't know the, as I said, roadmap earlier. They don't know the roadmap, and so they're just figuring out as they go. And, you know, I was lucky enough going to Belmont. I went to Belmont University, and I majored in music business, and I did internships. I jumped into the intern world. I think Mike D, is a, a, who's sitting at the table with us here, is a glowing example of it. You know, you just got to get involved, you know, and and as soon as you can, if you if you want to be in management, um, it's, it's getting an internship, you know, and working in the management community and um, learning and just growing, and then you become an assistant within the management community. Then you become a day-to-day manager, which means you're basically you're you know you're handling the calendar and you're making sure that the 
the days and the minutes are, are being taken care of and that the artist is where they need to be. And then you kind of grow into a more stri- strategic manager and become a manager and have a roster of your own. Um, but it's time and experience. And I, that's a long answer to your question, but I think sort of helps illustrate. It's just, it's time and experience. Mostly that makes you a good manager. You're doing marketing at Universal. You leave to go to Red Light to be the, the marketing guy there as well. When did you go, hey, I think I actually want to you know, get my, my hands dirty and actually work with an artist? And who was the first artist that you actually were in with where you were making decisions for them specifically? Well, I, when I came over to Red Light, I did not necessarily have designs to be a manager. Um, I was looking for a new opportunity. I'd been in the record company business for going on 20 years at that point. I'd started at a small company in town called Rising Tide when I was finishing at Belmont, but I was working there basically full time and worked there for a couple of years. And then I went over to um, Mercury Records and I'd seen the sort of the the change of the industry. And at that point, Napster had hit the, this again dates me, but that's when Napster hit the scene. And um, I could see how that was changing the record industry because Mercury Records, there were a lot of independent companies. There was Lyric Street Records. There was DreamWorks. There was Mercury. There was MCA. There was Arista. There was Giant Records. There was Curb. I mean, there was all these record companies around town. And I was working for Mercury. And at that time, had a really strong roster. Shania Twain was on the roster and what was sort of the, the biggest artist that they had at that time. And it was coming off of... Uh, the Come On Over record, which was selling Diamond, which was $10 million. And, and if you look at stats today in terms of what records are getting certified, that's it's almost unheard of today. Um, when you put in streaming equivalents, you know, people are getting there. But but that was huge. So it was Shania Twain, and it was Terry Clark, and Sammy Kershaw, and Jamie O'Neill. And then we had the Oh Brother, Where Art Thou soundtrack that just sort of blew up. But what we were seeing was... Um, that we were seeing a huge decline in sales that were starting to happen. And with that, then all the mergers. So Mercury then became Mercury MCA. We, we merged with MCA and I saw a staff decline. We, we had to, they had to let some people go. And then it was Mercury MCA DreamWorks when we merged with DreamWorks and I saw staff um, and layoffs. Um, and then we shut down that imprint DreamWorks altogether. And then we merged with EMI Capital. So then that became what is now known as Universal Music Nashville, which is Mercury, MCA, Capital, and EMI. And then I saw the same thing. I saw layoffs. And so I was through this, I don't know, just just kept seeing this changing environment and layoffs and consolidations and what seemed to be do more with less people, less money was was what seemed to be the strategy. And so at that point, then that's, you know, like I said, almost 20 years later of kind of going through that grind. And luckily... You know, I always had a home at, at a record company during all that, but I did start to think, man, there's got to be a different path for me. I keep seeing the decline within the record companies and, you know, where is my skill set? And, you know, for me in marketing, I, you know, the, the other places to work in the industry, and, and there are several, it's, you know, business management. I, I don't have an accounting background, so I can't just jump into business management. I, I hadn't been working in the touring environment, so I couldn't just jump into being a, a, a booking agent. And, you know, I wasn't an attorney, you know, and I hadn't worked in the merch business. So I was just thinking, what's what's my next path? And, you know, I think to be a good manager, you have to be a good marketer. I think everything is marketing, really. Um, and so I, I just kept thinking that probably my next life in the industry is in the management world. And that's the timing was right for me as I was starting to have this internal struggle about what's next for me and my path in the industry is was right at that time when we had merged with EMI Capital. And I also had felt at the company um, 
I don't know that I, I felt like I saw my path earlier before we merged with EMI Capital. I'd sort of rose in the ranks and I was the VP of marketing at Mercury MCA. And then with the merger, there was a whole new group of folks came in, a new head of the company, the, the head of the company that had been there prior. Luke Lewis had always been, you know, sort of my, he was my mentor and boss at that time. And I felt like I always had a home for them, him, with him and he left. And that's when Mike Dungan came in to run the company. And I'd known Mike for a long time and I've heard his name multiple times on this podcast because he's had such an influence and he has on me, but still he wasn't my guy necessarily. And, and so then I had to adapt into this new team and I just, I, I didn't feel like I necessarily had my long-term um, path at this new universal music group company. And so I was keeping my eyes and ears open. And that's when I think seeing some of that change in the industry, Corin Capshaw, who was the head of, um, Red Light had heard my name and actually with a colleague, um, a woman by the name of Mary Hilliard had mentioned my name to Corin because he was looking to expand the Nashville office. And the reason he was looking to expand the Nashville office was kind of the same reason I was looking to leave the, the record company because he had seen the trend of the record companies. And if you're having a management company, you put a lot of your hope and trust in, in, your, in the manpower um, that you expect to to have, was succeed with an artist with the record company. You're hoping the record company has the resources to really support your artist and break your artist in the marketplace. And he was seeing that trend, managing artists. He was seeing that all these record companies that we were signing our artists to, a lot of these record companies were reducing their staff, reducing their budgets. And so he kept thinking, well, gosh, as a management company, I can't leave you know, the, the future of art, artists in the hands of record companies solely if they're declining. So I need to start building out my staff. And so he knew that this change was happening over at Universal and Mary Hilliard had said, Hey, I, I know this guy, Tom, and recommended that Corn just meet me. And it's so funny. She reached out to me and said, Hey, you want to meet this guy, um, Corn? And I said, yeah, I'd love to. I mean, I, I didn't know what it was. I thought it was just to, to meet him. Um, I didn't necessarily know or think that it was a interview, but if, if you know Corn and, and Bobby, I know you do, you know, he's, he's right to business. You know, there's no, Hey, let's talk about your life. I mean, it's like, tell me what you do. Tell me what you do for the record company. Um, you know, do you ever work in international? Have you worked in, I mean, he was straight to business and I left the lunch with him and I thought, well, that wasn't like a get to know that was an interview. And we just kept conversation. And then he invited me to join red light. And I told him, I said, listen, I, I've never managed anybody. So I don't know that. I mean, I, I, I'm very interested, but I don't know that I, I would have to learn. And he said, well, I don't necessarily need you to manage anybody. I want you to come and help me with marketing and help. Let's, let's, let's make this company a bigger and better management company. And that's when I left the record company, which is a little bit of a leap of faith. I mean, my personality, I, I'm, I like some risk, but sometimes risk adverse. And I'd been at the record companies for, like I said, almost 20 years. And so I felt comfortable. I had my 401k, you know, and all those things. And, but I don't think I was feeling fulfilled. And, um, it was my wife who said, Tom, listen, you got to, I think you need to make a change, you know, for your own self personally, but also professionally. And, um, I, you know, I love my former employees and, and, um, colleagues over at Universal and all the record companies I worked with, but that was the best move I could make. I, I immediately felt more fulfillment and enjoyment out of management. And I just really got the bug and I started to really understand it more. So to answer your question, this is a long answer to your question, but you asked, what made me decide from marketing to get into more specific artist management. And I think it was learning more about what that business is. And when I was sitting in the seat of the record company, 
I felt like we were the only ones doing the work. And, I, and you'd hear people at the record co- company complaining and saying, man, what's the manager doing? I feel like we're doing all the work. And then when I started working at the management company, I, I realized what goes into artist management. I mean, it is a sometimes thankless job. Not with you, Bobby. Um, but sometimes thankless job. But it's 24-7. It's all the time. And... You know, we're dealing with the record company, but we're also dealing with something in their personal life. We're also dealing with, um, you know, like I said, their touring and the merchandise and their PR issues or whatever it may be. And so it is a constant thing. But I found, and it, I think this, it is a part of my personality is I sort of thrive in that chaos. I really loved it. And so having been at Red Light for a while um, and in my role of kind of overseeing marketing, there were a couple of artists that, um, had started to join the red light team, but didn't necessarily have a specific manager that we're working with or had been working with a manager and that relationship for whatever reason just didn't work out. And there was a young kid. Um, and this was sort of my first quote unquote artist that I started working with. And it was a young kid by the name of Adam Sanders. And he had a hit with Cole Swindell. He wrote a hit for him and wrote a song, um, for Dustin Lynch. That was a number one single hell of a night and had a cut on Luke Bryan's record. And, he was a young, talented artist. And at the time I was helping him with his marketing and his manager and he just split and he said, listen, I'd like to stay at red light. And, you know, would you work with me? And that's when I started to really work with and focus on a single artist and kind of help him along. And, you know, I was careful not to jump too far and deep into the quote unquote management side, more specifically with an artist, because my role was also doing marketing. And, um, but, but I just love that, ability to focus on a single artist. And I think that's the one thing in my role in marketing. It's hard for me to get really entrenched into the day to the day with the artist because there's so much going on in artist career. And that's what the manager in the day to day is doing. And so I was sort of flying at 30,000 feet with a lot of these artists and joining in in a marketing meeting with them and able to offer some suggestions or ideas. But, you know, I didn't feel like I was, you know, having that direct impact on their day to day. Um, and I think that's what gave me a little bit more of the bug to say, man, I'd really like to do that with a few artists that I feel passionate about and, or, or, or people that I feel passionate about. And, and that's where it's sort of, um, led me to some of the artists that I'm working with now. I've, you know, you, you grow really personally attached to these artists working with them and you want to see them succeed. And, um, and that was, and that was my move. I think at that point, I, you know, I still, I still oversee the marketing team, but also have to balance that and focusing on some of these artists that I work with. But, but I love it on a day-to-day basis. Sugarland is another artist when they're yep. together that, that you manage. How in the world are folks making money when you can't tour? Great question. Um, not, they're, they're making some. And, yeah, and, and to clarify that, I've, I've worked with Sugarland from the day they signed a record deal at Mercury Records. I was sitting in the lobby of Mercury Records when this new trio at the time came into the lobby and was introduced to us as this band Sugarland. And it was Kristen and Jennifer and Christian, um, the three that were the founding members of Sugarland. And so I had done the marketing for them um, when I was on the record company side. And when I left and came into management, Christian Bush at the time, this was when they, they took a little bit of a break and um, both pursued some other opportunities that they had, which I think was healthy for them. Um, Christian was looking for some management support for him. And so he came over to Red Light and I started working with him. And it was just a natural fit because we had worked together before. And so 
when Sugarland came back together, I work with Christian, and then there's a woman, Gail Gelman, who works with Jennifer, and we make it work working together for them. And um, right now, it's, it's, a, it's a great question. They're, they're victim to it, as, as all of these artists are. How are they making money today? Um, there are a couple of ways that an artist can make money outside of touring, but I'll tell you, it is definitely the biggest part of their pie, um, and as with management, because managers... As you said, you know, the, the financial structure for manager is that we basically participate in 15% of an artist income um, and, and really income of all spheres, you know, so that's from their merchandise. It's from personal appearances or brand deals or whatnot. Um, but a lot of that centers around touring and touring is where the most money is made. And in fact, I know, you know, a segment that you had before you were talking about sort of appearance fees for artists and you were kind of going through how that works. And you know, I think when you look at it, even for an artist that, you know, when you look at the, the quote unquote rate card that you, you had thrown out there on some of those artists is, you know, if an artist makes $40,000 for an appearance, that's not $40,000 that goes into their pocket. You know, it's, it's, they have expenses tied into it. It's the travel cost to get there. They have to pay their band and crew. They have to pay the commissions for the booking agent, their business manager, their manager. And, you know, at the end of it, that $40,000 probably turns into $10,000 or whatever it may be. And um, so it's it, it gets thinner. Now, the bigger you play, the bigger venues you play, the bigger your guarantees, you know, the you, after expenses, you're, you still, you're bringing home more money. Um, but at the end of the day, it is from the touring side where the majority of the money comes in. And right now people are, are at first when COVID impacted the touring business, you know, there were a lot of people that I think, well, I think a lot of us, if not all of us, really hope that this was just a few months and then we'll be back in business. I mean, that's what I was a big part of in the the start of this was, okay, all of the tours that was that were going to start in April or May, let's move them to June and July. And then we're thinking, okay, maybe we'll just move some of these to August, September. And then it just kept moving and moving and moving. Um, so when it first hit and impacted our business. I don't think, I don't think we were as much concerned about the financial impact as we are today, um, because it's obviously having a bigger impact knowing the delay that it's put on touring again, the biggest part of all of our business. Um, so at first I think people were just wanting to stay engaged and they were doing the virtual shows and they were Facebook live all the time. And, and a lot of times those were just free and it was just free entertainment for fans to stay engaged until we got back to business. And then I think you've seen from that somewhat fatigue from that, I think on the consumer side, but also on the artist side, but also artists saying, okay, now I have to monetize this. I got to figure out a way to monetize this because if this is our quote unquote new normal for right now, um, you know, I can't afford to just do free shows all the time because that's not feeding my crew. It's not feeding my family. Um, and so a lot of artists have moved into more branded sponsored virtual events. Um, there's still a way to stay. I mean, listen, all of these artists in their own right are influencers, you know, and they have big followings, you know, and there are artists that, you know, have millions of people on, on Instagram and Facebook, any of the social platforms. And that is a value to brands right now, some brands. Now I think it's impacted brands as well. You know I mean? I think everybody's suffering from it, but I think you're seeing that from sponsored content. I think you're seeing it from virtual shows. I think you're seeing it from flash sales and what people can do from merchandise. Um, those are where a lot of those artists are making money. Now, if you're an artist that is also a songwriter, 
that's different. You're able to have success if your songs are being played at radio. That that business is still there in the streaming business. There's there's income to be made on the publishing and performance rights side. Sorry, I'm getting in the weeds on it, but um, you know, I think the the basic point is without touring, that's probably an impact of eighty percent of any given artist's and I would say management companies income right now. Have you seen anything like Luke Combs in your time at, 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 in the label or working with management? I'll tell you, I think the the closest thing I can compare him to is what I felt like the impact of Garth Brooks was on the community. Um, and I wasn't even really in the business at that time, but I, once I joined the industry, everybody referred to him and, and, and I was a fan, you know, as, as I know you are. Um, but man, he hit the scene and hit it fast. You know, it's, much too young to feel this damn old, which was great. But then it was friends in low places and unanswered prayers and thunder rolls and all of the, I mean, it was just hit after hit after hit after hit, almost like the Midas touch. Everything he touched was gold, you know? And um, I, I can, imp- I, I can compare a similar impact the way Chris Stapleton impacted, but I can't even put those two together because Chris had been around this town for 15 years. He was in the Steel Drivers and the Johnson Brothers. I mean, he had already been in the industry for some time. Luke seemed to come out of nowhere and is categorized, and, and I think rightfully so, as a superstar. He is a superstar now. Um, so to answer your question, not necessarily. I mean, I think you could – Shania Twain, but she had a record before she really – like really hit when she partnered with Mutt Lang and then that's when the the Woman and Me record came out and Whose Bed Had Your Boots Been Under and then it was it was a rocket ship then but it wasn't quite to the same immediate impact that I think Luke is having. What about Al Dean? Al Dean I think I guess a little different because um, well now that you say it he had immediate hit with his first single the was only that person I've that heard was his first single. Yeah, it was. Yeah, the only person I've heard compared to Luke Combs in this generation, because Garth is the last, the one right before us. Yeah, is Al Dean. That's probably a good one, and I remember because I was in the industry when that happened, um, and I think what surprised people most, what too, was that it was an independent record company. This was a new record company. Benny Brown had started with Broken Bow Records, and here was this, you know, new kid. Um, that hit and and you're right it was hit after hit for him um i think luke's trajectory at least it seems perceptually for me right now seems to even have has sort of exceeded that but i think that's a great example jason did have immediate impact and then you know just years later is selling out you know georgia stadium and having you know the tremendous success but that but listen you, any of the superstars that we have today it didn't happen overnight. You know, Luke Bryan, a great example, who, as we mentioned earlier, you know, it was a couple records in when he really, really hit. Was it Tailgates and Tan Lines that was like, at that point, he had arrived. Eric Church wasn't immediate, you know, and that took a bit. And then Superstar. Um, Carrie Underwood, I think, had tremendous impact with her first single. But I think it was a little different. I think that was, I don't think it... It didn't feel it. it she, she came off of a, sh, you know, American Idol too. And I don't know. I don't know that I could put it the same way. Miranda took a while before Kerosene and then really started to have hits. And it, it doesn't happen like it, you see it with, with Luke Combs, you know, and, um, you know, I give it to him. I, 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 he's done no wrong so far. And 
um, you know, good for him. I'd like to see that. You know, I want to see young. I want to see new superstars. I think we as a format have to have that. Not that we, not that you want to see people evolve out. And I think that's the beauty of country music is that country artists can have those 20, 30 art, you know, year careers. And I think you've seen it with George Strait and the Alan Jacksons, Martina McBride, who's still having success. Maybe not the same relative success that you see if you're benchmarking it against radio, but she's still able to go out there and tour. And you look at all of these other artists, the Mark, you know, the Mark Chestnuts and Mark Wills and, you know, and, and, you know, God rest his soul. But Joe Diffie was having a, a really strong career, um, you know, in resurgence. And so these artists are able to have really, really long careers. So like I said, I don't want to see them evolve out, but I think it's important that we continue to elevate as an industry, elevate super superstars because that is only, it's only healthy for our, I think our genre and our format because it continues to bring new audience in. You don't want our audience to completely age out and you want the younger audience to have an artist that they can champion the same way. I think you and I, or me specifically was championing, you know, Garth Brooks at the time or Dwight Yoakam at the time when it hit for me. Like these are, those are the artists that I felt like I owned a little bit, you know? Um, and so, uh, you know, to see these young superstars and, you know, there are artists that are now headline, you know, Dan and Shay, you know, that's not an overnight success. Superstars now, you know, and, um, you know, kudos to, kudos to it. Cause it's not easy, you know, being in this industry, man, it is tough to get to that level. It's easy it may be, well, it's not even easy, but you can have a hit. You know, you can have a hit, but to impact, um, I think that's that's something that is, that's a difference, you know, and that's what you've seen in impact from, you know, we said Gabby earlier, Gabby's having a really strong impact right now with this one song. Now, our challenge, her challenge will be to um, back that up, but Chris Stapleton, impact, um, once he really kind of hit the scene, but again, that was a grind for him you know, I was there at Universal when, you know, Chris sort of took his first step as a solo artist, if you will, um, in the kind of commercial country landscape and um, put out some great music. There was a single called What Are You Listening To? that I, it's still in a heavy rotation in the Lord household, which is my household. Just so you know, it's not heaven. I'm referring to people. that <laughs> It could be playing up there also. But, um, you know, and to me, you had hoped and thought, and I think that's the thing with management that's a struggle is that, you you know, you get attached to these artists and you just, you, you, it seems so obvious to you, their talent, and seems so obvious that they should succeed. Um, and I think Chris, Chris Stapleton was one of those artists when he first came through. I was like, well, this is a no-brainer. This guy's got it all, you know, and. and now, this, this is about the time I met Chris because I was having him on the show when yeah. the song came out. Well, that, you know, yeah, that's right. You were an early, same thing. You saw that too, you know, early champion Loved form. Him. Was getting in trouble for putting him on the air because nobody had ever heard of him. Like yeah. executives in, in radio. Yep. Because I was being eyeballed hard every move because I was different at what I was doing. So like, why are you doing this? And so we have a video of Chris because he come in four or five times early. And I, the first time I ever called him, I called him. He was in the shower. He was like, hey, man, I'm in the shower. Can I call you right back? I was on the air. And I was like, yeah, man, we'll call you back in a minute. And so he came in and he did a bunch of his hits. Your man, Josh Turner. He did, uh, he came back later, did Drink a Beer from Lou that he wrote. But I was like, this guy is so pure mm-hmm. just as, a, as an artist. He's probably not the most perfect singer, but he's the best mm-hmm. in my mind. Like I was just moved by him. And when he finally hit, I was like, holy crap. And, and I, again, the Stapleton thing, I've never seen anything album related like I have with Stapleton's. Yeah. 
with, with that album yep. what, that had Tennessee Whiskey and... Um, yeah, Whiskey and You, and it said Fire Away, and, you know, and that's, that was The Traveler. I mean, it was Parachute. The Parachute was yeah. on that record, yeah. I, yeah. I've, album-wise, I've seen nothing like that album since I've been in town, which is about eight years now, yeah. because it just stayed at number one. Yeah, it's still, I think, if you look on some of these streaming charts, it's still one of the top streamers, which is unbelievable. And I, but I think it, what I, the, the point I was making with him is that, you know, you, you see some of these artists that you think, um, you know, it seemed no brainer and that they can have their shot and that they're going to, you know, they're going to have immediate impact. And, and sometimes it, it doesn't, you know, and sometimes it doesn't work for whatever reason. And I think, you know, not everybody sees, and that's the, it's sort of the beauty and also, also sort of the frustrating thing about music. It is, it really is so subjective in so many ways. I mean, I, there are songs that I hear on records that I go, oh my God, that's a hit, you know, and instead, you know, they release something else. I'm thinking, oh, that's not going to work. And then it becomes a multi-week number one. You know, it's, we all have our opinions there and, um, I think with with Chris, I thought that was going to hit immediately, and it, I, I have to imagine, and and he and I have not had a conversation about it, um, but I have to imagine that was really frustrating for him, you know. And but he stuck with it, and um, and then he made a record that, as you said, has really stood the test of time. And you know, that's I, that's what I get off on in this industry is seeing those artists succeed that really, you know, that truly have that talent. And everybody has their own talent they bring to the table, but. Um, with him, it's been fun to see that kind of impact. And I think that's that when you ask about living the world of Luke Combs right now, and I don't work with Luke, but I've seen what, what he's doing and that, you know, seeing what, what the impact that Chris had, I think it's important. Like I said, for this format, we've got to continue to bring superstars to the stage. I'll end with this because your background is in music. You studied music at Belmont music business. Yeah. Okay, so it's all been music. So what in the world would compel you to want to work with me? Because only one part of my business is music. Uh, I I told you I sort of thrive in the chaos, um, and I like the challenge of things. And I think for any manager, the the worst thing that you can do is have a client that does not want it as much as you want as you want it for them. Um, and what I mean, it is success. You know, there are a lot of artists that just sort of expect or clients or however you want to define them that just expect success is going to happen and they don't want to work for it necessarily or work as hard as you need them to work. Um, when we first worked together or started working together, um, you know, I think you challenged all of us internally um, in, in sort of laying out what your goals were. Um, and it wasn't just to be status quo um, and it was to elevate and it was to write a book and it was to have a TV show. And it was, I mean, you, you've always aspired for more and you know, that's a, a, a big part of your personality and that really enthusiasm, you know, it, it, that ignited me, I think is, is whatever, where I was going with it. I think I was drawn to your desire to keep growing. And um, I like to think that we have a, um, a fit just personality wise. Like I, I just yeah. liked you. I, I, yeah. I liked you as a person and wanted to see you succeed. And I got it. Like I understood it. Like, and I, I don't know. That's what really compelled me to work with you is seeing your drive and to see you want to succeed and you're not satisfied with the status quo and you want to try different things. And that just keeps me growing too. Um, and I think that has for me been a personally rewarding and professionally rewarding. Let me shout out Tom Betchy in case he's listening because you and Tom are, are both my direct guys. And so you come from a creative music background where yeah. he's a business guy. Yeah. 
And have you ever worked directly with Tom until me? Yeah, in fact, so we were at Universal together. He came up, when we merged together, when I was at Mercury MCA, he was um, COO of EMI Capital. And we merged together. And so for a year, we worked together, um, but never directly. Like he was sort of more on the business side. He was running the operations and doing the books and working on payroll and uh, working on the artist agreements. And it was all more legally stuff. And I was more in this other sort of creative world where it's marketing and marketing campaigns and bigger strategy and content creation and et cetera, et cetera. And, um, but we always had a mutual respect. And when he joined a red light after me, I'd, I'd like to think he followed me there. Um, when he joined, uh, we, we both had a, a role at red light that was different than others. He was helping with more of the operational stuff and I was helping more of the creative stuff. And so we just found ourselves working together and, um, I think that's what you want in a management team is, is are people in your team that complement each other. And, you know, you described it. He brings strengths to the table that I don't have. Far more. No, I wouldn't say far more. Far more strengths. Far more. <laughs> I well, I mean, I wouldn't put it that way. I think he has some. Um, but And I have other strengths. And I think we work really well together in that way. And um, I'll, I'll mention Morgan, too who came from radio and is now the, the position you talked about when someone gets into management, she is my day to day. You know, she's watching the calendar. She's, you know, really making sure daily what's happening with me and, and enforcing at times. And so, and I, I assume Morgan's been good. I mean, I see she's branching out a bit too. Yeah. Morgan's been great. And, um, that was an interesting, um, search for us because we were looking for somebody to, to be in that role. And, we saw the relationship and, and the, sort of the evolution of, of Morgan in that she worked with you from an assistant level and sort of graduated. Intern, intern assistant, assistant. Yeah. Phone As, screener. And she had sort of um, sort of evolved with you and grown with you that um, we were lucky that we could sort of put her into that role and that she was willing to come into that role. And she's she's been great. And, you know, she's learned the ropes quickly. And I think that was, you know, that was the one thing that you said, how does somebody get into management? It is a learnable task. I mean, there are, there are skill sets that come into it that I think, you know, that you, you either have or you don't, um, just from a personality trait, but you know, you can learn the business, you learn any business. You know, I, I do think that there's some talents that you, you may not be able to master. Songwriting's one. You can learn how to write a song. It doesn't make you great at it. I've tried, um, before, um, but um, Morgan's been a huge addition, I think, to this team, and um, we're, we'd like to see her grow, and, that, and I think that just makes us a stronger management company. If we can enable these folks that work within our red light structure to, um, to work with other artists and to learn, that's going to make us a stronger management company across the board. As we wrap it up, uh, the, the last couple sprinkles will add the cupcake here, that if you want me to ever hear a song, you have to get it to Tom, not to me. Let's not <laughs> encourage that. His email I is... iHeartRadio. <laughs> How many times a week does somebody at least reference you working with me for their benefit? Uh, it is, it's, in, it's, it's growing um, by the day. I've had, a, I've had a couple within the last seven days that have been, hey, um, you work with Bobby, right? And I said, yeah, yeah. 
So you, can you get him this record? <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I, and I think, again, it's the relationship that a manager and, and client or artist have is, is a trust thing. Like there's our relationship is built in a different way. It's built on me working with you in your career. I'm not in the programming business with you. I'm not in the radio business with you. And I don't pretend to be. And I would never. And I think that's a part of what you have to balance as a manager is that you can't you can't abuse that relationship. Um, if, if you know if it, if it's not right, it's not right for me, or for people to uh, sort of assume that I can influence you. Well, you can, and you do. Uh, well, we have conversations about artists, sure. but the, you know the way we we do. You know, there's some artists that I've championed, and and you've said, "Man, I'd, I'd really like that artist." The same way you do for me, you come to me and say, "Hey, man, what do you think of this artist?" And I'm, you know, and I discover artists that way too. Um, but yeah, I try to respect that with you. It's like I I, I can't be. I'm not a radio rep and trying to get you know, everybody's singles played on the radio and, and influence you. And I, I try to, you know, respect that with you. Mike, anything you'd like to ask Tom before we wrap it up? I feel enlightened here. <laughs> I'm sure you do. Again, this is going to be the most consumed <laughs> yeah, podcast. Yeah. I don't know what the records are. Um, We're, well, the over under for this is seven streams. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> Literally seven. Okay. That's so, my, my that's mom, <laughs> dad. It's me listening back three times. <laughs> it's Stephanie, my wife. Uh, the big takeaway here is, much like everything else in the music industry, there isn't an exact key that goes into the exact hole. You kind of got to figure it out by, by Jimmy in the lock sometimes. You do, and follow up. I mean, whether it's the music industry or anything else, it's just following your passion. Listen, that's the reason I'm in it. It's not because I just was looking for a gig. Um, you know, for me, coming out of high school... I, good, I'm glad we can extend the time here. Sorry, guys, I'm going to take another hour here. <laughs> but... Um, you know, I, I, at 18 years old, you're sort of faced with in life to decide what do you want to do with the rest of your life? What do you want to major in? What do you want to become? And I, for me, it was I was playing baseball and I knew my skill set was not enough to take me to the major leagues. And and I was playing in bands. I was playing music. I just loved it. But I knew, again, that I didn't necessarily have the skill to to be a full time musician. And that's when I learned about, you know, music business and um, I went to Belmont University. I walked on for the baseball team, made the team for a couple of months for a semester. I'll give myself a little more credit um, as a walk-on and then um, started majoring in music business. And I just was enamored with it. And I just love it. And I still do today. Like, I still get fired up about music. I still love songs. I still And I, and I get so much enjoyment out of seeing artists succeed. So I guess that my, my point in all of that is, you know, if, if music's your passion, man, follow it, you know, or whatever it is. And there are so many opportunities in life um, that I, I don't know that I really ever knew of, you know, interior design or, you know, whatever it may be. You know, for me, it was like, you can be a doctor, a business salesman, uh, an attorney or a teacher, you know, it's like, I don't know, like, that's all I really knew of. And man, there's so many opportunities out there. Um, but it starts with finding your passion. And I, I and I I feel so lucky and blessed um, to be doing what I'm doing because I just don't know what else I do. You know that fulfills me. The Who way wins Entertainer of the Year this year? This is it. Last question. Who wins Entertainer of the Year the CMAs? Mm. The, I, if I'm going from memory here, it's Eric Church, Carrie Underwood, Luke Combs, Keith Urban, Miranda Lambert. I believe from memory that's the five. That's pretty good. I think you may be right. Um, I just voted. You did? Okay. Um, I just voted. Uh, 
Ooh. Who wins? It's a tough one. It's a tough one. I, and I'll you don't agree. You'd have to agree with what I'm saying. I think Luke Combs probably should win. Mm-hmm. I think that this community sometimes penalizes people for being too big, too fast. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, wait your turn. I agree. You saw that with Dan and Shay. I agree. Um, did you say Miranda Lambert? I did. Yeah. yeah. I think Luke Combs should win. I tell you, I voted for Kerry um, mm-hmm. because I feel like. Just she deserves it. There's no, there's, and for me, there's no identifier what Entertainer of the Year means other than entertain me. So TV, yeah. uh, s- sketch comedy, Instagram, your radio hits, your tour, that I, full encompassing entertainment is what that is to me. And that is why I voted for Carrie because to me, she's the most that. Mm-hmm. She doesn't have the radio success Luke Combs does, at least not last year or the last two years. But there's no wrong answer because there. If Eric Church wins, you go, huh, I get it. Uh, That's where I was going to go with it is like, man, I don't think there's a wrong vote there. And I know this is such a political answer, but I sort of live in a political world in in my business. But there's no wrong answer to that vote. And and the reason, because I think they all deserve it for different reasons. Luke Combs, I don't disagree, probably on paper right now. If it was stat-based, Luke Combs would run away with it. Deserves it. And I don't think anybody would go, "Mm." but I do think you're right. People reward people. Or, or the voters reward artists that have also put in more time. Um, and I, I have to say, what, I, what Eric Church has done over the last couple of year, years blows my mind. You know, that he plays a three-and-a-half, four-hour set by himself. You know, it has three different, like, he plays a full band show, then breaks it down and does an acoustic set and then comes back out. I mean, you want to talk about Entertainer of the Year, if it's based on that, that's, that's a lot of work. And some people do, based on touring and how entertaining you are live. That is, that and is that's correct. fair. That is correct. Um, Carrie Underwood, who has been hit after hit after hit, consistent. And, and when you talk about entertainment, I mean, her, her styling and her graphics, I mean, all of that, I think, again, deserves it. Miranda Lambert, I, don't count her out because that's another one who has consistently been a stalwart in this industry and continue to have success. But also what I've seen with her is sort of lift up other artists and I, and I, and I, think that is recognized by the industry. Um, I've gotten in, I mean, we could have a whole other conversation about voting and who to vote for and why to vote for them because I think that's what I've sort of argued, and this is a little bit in, in our backyard, red light that is, but like with Luke, Luke Bryan, and I referenced him again earlier, where I think Luke Bryan has been that artist. You know, and everybody said, well, you got to vote for Garth Brooks. He sells more tickets. I get it. I get it. Garth, who nobody can deny Garth, Garth's, you know, reason for winning Entertainer of the Year, and I think well-deserved, but from Luke, who entertains people with consistent singles at radio. I mean, consistent, number one singles at radio. Um, amazing, just entertainer and personality. Idol. America, that's where I was going to go yeah. with it. You want to talk about entertainer? That's I mean, why I carry as my vote. Yeah. But again, there isn't a specific rule that dives into why you should vote for a single person. That is correct. It's almost like obscenity by the FCC. There is no rule on what's obscene. Right. It's just... Eh, whatever your community feels is, is what it is. And if they get irritated and they, they complain, then we may find you. Yep. You're just like, give us a rule here. Uh, totally right. There's no, there, I, that's, you wish that there was a more specific benchmark to it. I mean, it's overall entertainment. What is that? What, how do you define that? Um, and that's why, for me, I've sort of been standing on the, the box for you know Luke Bryan for... I agree he got screwed over. Yeah, and the last couple of years, he continued to He just to won deliver. too much. I'm telling you, he won too many things. At two, he got Angelina Jolie. 
They start taking her off in front of magazines because she was winning every hot award. Right. And then nobody wanted anything to do with her because she was plastered all over everything else. Yeah. And I think Luke had to suffer his success. I think you're right. I think you're right. And, you know, I, you, at the same time, I like to see new names in the category. So Luke Combs, Combs let's, you know, let's say Luke, the other Luke, took Luke's spot, let's say. You know, you can't take that away from him. He deserves it, too. Absolutely. I think Dan and Shay could have been put up there. I think Dan and Shay could You're have. You're talking about people that are getting screwed over a little bit in awards? Because awards are very political. I think Florida Georgia Line gets, gets dicked over a little bit. I was just about to go there. Mm-hmm. Like, I, they're massive. They, they, can, they put out such quality as far as generally people love it. Correct. And they're not recognized by the community of voters as much as they should be. I totally, that was the example that was in my head too. And I have championed them for a bit too, because they, there's, you know, there's some great duos. Um, I think Brothers Osborne, who's amazing. And, you know, the industry really loves and has championed them. Dan and Shay, hard to argue that they shouldn't win now too, because of the success that they've had. But prior to them and even, sort of um, compared to Brothers Osborne, Florida Georgia Line was putting up the numbers. They were putting up the numbers, whether it's touring, whether it's the radio hits, the consumption numbers, you know, Meant to Be was one of the most consumed songs, a cruise, for God's sakes. It was, the you know, one of the most consumed songs in the history of country music, but for whatever reason, wasn't getting the vote. And so you're right. It, it, it's not always who deserves to win. Um, but again, that's a little subjective too, as we just it's said. It's all subjective. If it wasn't subjective, I'd be hosting the CMAs, but it's all subjective. Robert? Yeah, Robert. <laughs> all right. Sarah? Tom Lord, thank you very much. It's, this is, we've been here for seven hours. Wow, who knew? I've asked, two, and I've asked every, two, only two questions. It felt every bit yeah. of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it felt every bit of it. All right, thank you. Thank you. Jamie Lynn. Hey. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. I was watching some of your Instagram story today, and I was flipping through Instagram in general. You are everywhere today. You're on Ryan. You were on Ryan's show, Seacrest. I saw you on like three different news shows. Is today or yesterday and today big press days for Zoe 101? Um, I, I honestly, I'm so lost in it. I I know the video releases today. But yeah. Like the official video comes out for everyone today on my YouTube. So I think, yeah, I think today's the big push. Well, you're but, everywhere. Um, you're everywhere I look right now. That's, that's pretty cool. So congratulations. Thank you. Well, congratulations to you too. I'll, I'm so happy for you. When I saw that, I was like, oh my gosh, he did it. <laughs> Jamie Lynn told me, Mike, that she had a dream. I had, I was having babies already. <laughs> I did. And, but this was like, I don't know, maybe two or three weeks ago. I can't remember. And I just, it was just, you had a baby and you were like you were happy. The over, you know, like dreams. You kind of remember bits and pieces, but the overall feeling was happy. It was it was not like a bad thing. It was like a good thing. And I was just like, that's so strange. Maybe I was listening on the radio and my kids screaming. I don't know. Maybe that's what I dreamed about it. Well, I appreciate yeah. that. I, anytime anybody says or thinks anything good about me, I appreciate. So before we get into the Zoe 101 stuff, I just want to reset my audience for a second because I think you are such a talented songwriter and such a talented performer. Aside from Zoe 101, because maybe some folks. They're on the young side of it or on the older side of it. Didn't catch it. So what I want to do is brag on you for one second before we talk about that. And the song that Jamie Lynn came to, into my studio to play, the first time I'd met her, was this one here called How Could I Want More. And then she also wrote for Jana Kramer, I Got the Boy. Here's a clip of that. I got the 
And so I say all of that just to set you up because now we just believe you're good. So tell me about this, the, the new song from Zoe 101. Obviously, writing music, creating music is like everything to me. But I am a creator, and also I do have, you know, family I have to provide for. So I was able to find another way to have a creative outlet and being able to go back into the Zoe era, but not only with the show, but the music as well, because the theme song was like one of the cast members. People loved it just as much as they loved us. So we never fully released it. I figured during this time where everybody's on lockdown, why don't we throw together some Zoom co-writes and let's rework it a little bit and let's give them the theme song and give the fans what they want. So that's what we did. We just kind of reworked it. I went to a studio during COVID, like and this is like in the heart of COVID. I was by myself with a mask on, with the, you know, the engineer, with the producers on Zoom singing. They couldn't even hear really what it sounded like back. And that is how we recorded the song and got crazy. <laughs> Well, and so, you know, I, I'm seeing some of the uh, new Zoe 101, uh, you guys all together, the cast. What, what is it like to reunite with all of them? It was great. Some of them couldn't be there. They were um, actually out of the country. Two of them were. Um, but it was weird because my daughter was there and she, my oldest daughter, was the same age as when I knew all these kids and was seeing them, like, consistently. So it was really weird seeing that, like, side by side, like, living in two times at once. And they were all great, and hopefully, um, you know, hopefully we can get everybody together for the reboot. But it was nice to be able to have the people that we did and just kind of catch up and relive, you know, relive our glory days. When you say you're hoping you can get everybody together for the reboot, like you're doing the reboot, right? Oh, yes. Okay. I mean, I've been involved with the creative, all of that. It's all happening. It's just, you know, you know how it's really hard to get things in production right now, but... um, that it's all happening, yes. Here's a question for you. What's it like to hang out with famous TikTokers in real life? Because are they always trying to film and TikTok something? I did not see one of them with their phones in their hand, honestly. They were there. They were so professional. They were so kind. They were so, like, engaging with my daughters and my family. I was blown away by how these kids are so young but so professional. I think that it's just, it's just the way our world is now. And that's why I thought it was a good direction to go with because, you know, whenever I was 12 and 13, all the 12 and 13-year-olds liked me, and now all the 12 and 13-year-olds love them. So bringing the two generations together and kind of having them side by side was a really neat, you know, neat idea for the whole, you know, the whole Zoe generation and the new Zoe thing. But they were so kind and they were so professional and just nice, good kids, honestly. Was there ever a rivalry between Nickelodeon and Disney kids? You know, I never really felt like it was because, like, Miley was always so kind to me. Me and her got along really well, and we saw each other at a lot of events, and we were friends afterwards. And I would assume that, you know, Zoe and Hannah Montana would have been the biggest competition. But for me, I was like, Hannah Montana's got this. I mean, she's huge. There's no competing with that, you know. So for me, I was just like, I'm lucky I get to do something I love to do. And it's really neat to meet other kids who do it. So I never felt that, but I definitely know that, like, there was that with some other kids that were in, like, our young Hollywood group. With your oldest daughter, does she think you're cool yet outside of being her mom because of what, uh, of, of Zoe? Or is she, are you cooler now because you get to introduce her to other people that she really thinks cool? She does not think I'm cool. She's <laughs> highly embarrassing. Very high. But for the first time, when I told her that, you know, Dixie D'Amelio and Noah Beck, she doesn't even have a TikTok account, but just her friends, they all have them and stuff. 
So she just knows who these people are. It's just her generation. She told me she was proud of me. Wow. The other day. Yeah, I was like, well, well, I have made it, I tell you. She was proud of me because she said, you know, I see you everywhere. My friends are talking about you, and I got to meet these people, and thank you, Mama. I'm just so proud of you. And I was, it just made me so happy. The, the TikTok you did with your daughters where you were walking in front of them and they weren't looking up at you at all, quite funny. Okay, well, that video caused, like, a big disruption in my house. I had to FaceTime my manager with my daughter with me, and I was like, Maddie's telling me I cannot post this. That it is so embarrassing that I would shake my butt in front of the camera like that. It's going to be her at school about how I shook my butt in front of camera. And my manager's just like laughing. She's like, Maddie. And so, like, I, I showed a few people being like, is this that bad? And she, because she knew that, like, I said, y'all just sit here and don't pay attention. And then when I did that, she was very angry with me. So I ended up posting it anyways. You know, you got to do what you got to do for those likes, right? You're preaching to the choir. Absolutely. Okay, l l listen, everybody out there listening to me right now, the official music video for Follow Me, Zoe 101, is, has already premiered by the time you hear this. Um, the Zoe 101 revival will be a, a half reunion, half complete reboot. That's right. Right, Jamie Lynn? Yes, yes. Okay, I'm in. I'm such a big fan of you and y your music career, your being a mom traveling around with your daughter's softball team. It was like you were the, the coach. You're everywhere they were, you were. Uh, just you as a person, I'm just such a big fan. So anytime you need anything, you can always reach out to me. Thank you so much, Bobby. You are the best. And yes, I am the softball team mom. Happy to know that. <laughs> proudest, my proudest title. So thank you are the best. I'm so happy for you. I wish you all of the best things in the whole entire world as this new phase starts for you. Thank you, Jamie. I'll talk to you soon, hopefully. Thank y'all. All right, bye-bye. In every pair of Tacova's boots, you can expect handmade quality, first wear comfort, and timeless Western style. Tacova's boots are always made from premium bovine and exotic leathers, and with occasional resoling, they will last a lifetime. The best way to shop for boots is at your local Tacova store, where you'll be greeted by the smell of fresh leather and a friendly smile. Come on in, grab a cold one, get fitted by a pro, and shop the latest styles. Visit tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. And don't go gently, y'all. This is the year to stop overpaying for your family plan. So choose a straight talk wireless family plan. Unlimited data, talk, and text on a reliable 5G network. And you can get a new line starting at $25 per line per month for four lines, plus taxes and fees and no contracts. That's good decision making. Available at Walmart and on straighttalk.com. Family plan discount with four lines, all on the silver unlimited plan. Not combinable with auto pay discount. In times of traffic, your data may be temporarily slower than other traffic. Video streams at up to 480p. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.